The Vincast, Australia's premier wine podcast, wishes you a happy new year. Hopefully you guys had some amazing wines over the break and uh, possibly you may have bought them from a supporter of the podcast, Different Drop. Different Drop specialises in Australian wines of authenticity, provenance and innovation. Uh, they can ship wines anywhere in Australia and they've put together a fantastic range of wines made by some of the most exciting wine producers in the country. Uh, they source from usually very small producers, so uh, they only are made in very small quantities. Uh, so it really is an opportunity to find wines that you might not otherwise see in the big wine retailers or in your uh, very average uh, restaurant. So uh, it really is a question of uh, getting there fast because the wines don't last very long. If you go to differentdrop.com forward slash intrepid wino, you'll actually find uh, a special section of the website dedicated to uh, former guests of this podcast and you'll be able to buy their wine. So it really is a fantastic way for you to support the guests for donating their time, to support the podcast itself and to support Different Drop who are uh, very, very generously uh, offering you a, a special discount. If you put in the code intrepid30 at purchase, you'll get a 10% discount. So thanks very much, guys, for listening to another episode. Uh, thanks very much, Different Drop, for your support of this podcast and, of course, for your support of guests of the podcast. On episode 77 of The Vincast, I chat with Jamie Good, one of the most important wine bloggers in the world and the author of The Science of Wine and Authentic Wine Toward Natural and Sustainable Winemaking. there, Vincasters, and welcome to the first episode of 2016 of The Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and it is certainly wonderful to be starting off the new year with, uh, with a brand new episode of the podcast uh, with a very, very, very special guest uh, and someone I'm very excited to, to share with you, the listeners. Uh, hopefully you had a, a lovely break and you got some time off and um, I'm hopeful that you actually opened some lovely bottles of wine. I know that I did, um, some bottles that, uh, that I bought and also some bottles that were uh, given to me, which was, um, which was fantastic. Uh, and uh, please do share with me some of the bottles that you opened that um, made an impact on you uh, over the Christmas break. Um, I've got some really exciting plans uh, in store for 2016. Hopefully, uh, we are rapidly hoping, uh, approaching episode 100 of the podcast, which, uh, um, you know, still can't believe I've actually managed to get to this point. Uh, thank you for everyone's support, uh, particularly, uh, everyone who has, uh, given their time to be on the podcast. Uh, for episode 77, the first of the year, I actually am chatting with Jamie Good. Jamie Good is uh, undoubtedly the most important wine blogger in the world, uh, one of the original wine bloggers. Uh, he also is, of course, a journalist and writer. He's written a number of books about wine. He is a regular contributor in, uh, in print media uh, and was recently uh, in Australia for the uh, Rootstock Festival in Sydney uh, and got the opportunity to, to visit some other producers whilst he was here. Uh, and so I uh, spoke with him via Skype. Uh, he was dialing in uh, from London first thing in the morning, and uh, we had a wonderful chat. I do hope you enjoy our discussion. Uh, it was very fascinating and enlightening. Uh, please stick around to the end of the episode so you can find out how to get in touch with both myself and Jamie to, uh, to share your impressions of the podcast. But until then, I will see you on the other side. Jamie, thank you very much for joining me uh, all the way over in uh, possibly very dreary London uh, on this uh, Lovely morning. Thank you very much for your time. Happy to be part of this. <laughs> uh, and of course, uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, your time in Australia recently. Uh, and it was great to actually meet you in person at Rootstock. 
yeah, that was a pretty epic festival, actually. I really enjoyed it. And I had a lot of fun touring around as well. Uh, met some really cool people. Um, it's one of those trips, you know, where I'm quite lucky. I travel quite a bit, but this was one of those special trips, really. It was a really good trip. Yeah, it was great right to, um, to follow your activities on uh, Instagram. Yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, and my goal for my career is just to one day just to do Instagram. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Just travel and just pop a few Instagram pictures off and, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, usually I start every episode by asking my guest uh, if they can remember the first interaction with wine that actually made them think about wine in a different way that possibly set them on the path of uh, pursuing a career or, or, or dedicating themselves to wine. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's an interesting thought. I mean, I remember I really started taking an interest in wine um, in the sort of early, mid-90s. And um, one of the things that, that really got me into it was um, a friend. I was just, um, I just finished my PhD and I was um, staying in a flat with a friend um, and he was a bit older. He really, he was into wine and he'd gather a few of us together um, every Sunday evening would open a couple of bottles, just very low key. And these were, these were my first experiences with proper interesting wine. And I think it's often the case from people I speak to that, that they're led into it by someone else. And sure. Someone kind of sort of mentors them into wine. And I think it's that human connection, whether it's somebody in a wine store, or whether, whether it's a friend, <clears throat> I think it's often the way that, that we, our eyes are gently opened to this sort of magical world. And I think that, you know, out there, there's probably lots of latent um, wine geeks who just haven't experienced good wine. So that's, that's why they're not into it. And, and all it would take is them just to, in a very, um, just a very low key way, just to actually have the experience of wine. I think the wine does the rest of them. Was there anything in particular that, um, that you felt that you responded to with the wine? Like, for example, what did you, what was your PhD on? Oh, that was um. <clears throat> Sorry, just woken up, so it's a, a bit croaky. Um, That's right. <laughs> the um, that was some plant biology. It's nothing to do with wine at all. It was a, it was just a, a kind of nerdy, geeky project um, that I found quite fun and kept me out of trouble for three years. Um, yeah, there, there was no link there with the wine. <clears throat> was it something? Was it was that something that kind of played into your uh, interest? Uh, in wine later on as you kind of learnt more about wine and, and started thinking about the, you know, the vine as a plant and, and, and your studies, that kind of thing? Well, I think that, I mean, I worked for 15 years as a science editor, so I was dealing with science and concepts around science and a, a particular way of thinking that the scientific community has. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's not the only way of explaining the world around us, but it's an interesting way. Sure. And I think science, science for me was a, a nice grounding in really being curious about things and a certain way of addressing subjects. And so for wine, what the science behind wine, and there's plenty of it. Yeah. Um, it's been something that's always interested me and just asking questions. And I think when you immersed in a scientific community, one of the things you realize fairly quickly is that, um, is the lack of certainty. Um, so scientists in a particular field, you know, we used to have these scientific meetings and they'd gather together and share that ideas and discuss their work pretty soon you realize that these are all very smart people they're all using science as a tool and they're kind of debating quite a bit the sorts of the sorts of conclusions that they're drawing from the data that they've got and so what that showed me was that the scientists it's not just like this is the truth um, it's not binary it's not dualistic and in fact there's lots of different ways of looking at the problem when it comes to wine i think it's very interesting that a lot of the contentious topics in the world of wine are only contentious because people are locked in this dualistic way of thinking. Sure. And they're locked in that sort of, this is the truth, this, this is false, this is truth, this is false. And I think um, I, I love coming to wine and just saying, just, just, just seeing the different perspectives that people have and not kind of joining the trench warfare that sometimes exists. I mean, a great example of this was the whole um, screw cap cork debate that ignited about... Um, I guess um, about 15 years ago. Yeah. And particularly in Australia and New Zealand, it was very contentious. You know, um, if you traveled to Australia 10 years ago and said you thought cork was actually quite interesting and it's a closure that has properties that 
can sometimes make the wine taste better, um, you'd probably be lynched. Um, but, um, <laughs> but now I think there's, there's a more mature understanding that, that different closures suit different wines better. You know, and I'm, I'm no cork defender. I think um, cork taints such a complete disaster. Mm. But I don't think the automatic response is to say, well, the only closure that can ever work is a screw cap with a tin sarin lining. Sure. So it's those sorts of issues I think are quite interesting. And obviously the big issue now at the moment um, is I'm fascinated by um, the whole match and wine movement. And I think some of the wines I taste are breathtaking and wonderful. But you go to the wine scientists and they say, well, it's impossible to make wine like that. They'll all be faulty. And clearly they're not. Yeah. That's, that's a very subjective thing, I think. Yeah. In terms of that kind of uh, that scientific uh, aspect of, no, I guess, uh, accepting what you don't know. Um, I, I, I kind of came to that conclusion relatively early on in my wine um, interest and wine career was that you get to a point where you realize there's so much to know about wine that it's virtually impossible to know everything about it. And, of course, because wine is always changing, uh, you know, it's it's impossible to actually stay on top of absolutely everything. I think, you know, Chance Robinson said, years ago that same thing and i think when people accept that fact it can can actually be very liberating yeah absolutely <clears throat> i think that if you do these sort of very high-end wine exams sometimes you think um that it's your duty to know everything and that it's actually feasible or possible and it really isn't um, and if you're liberated from that quest of being the the expert and um, suddenly you take on the mantle of the adventurer then suddenly I think that changes perspective in a very healthy way. Then uh, I, I think, think the, the, the person actually who seeks to know as much as possible possibly misses out on the, on the joy of being surprised or, or finding yes. out something new. It, it, it's yes. almost like they're seeking out the opportunity to say, oh, yeah, that just proves my theory. Yeah, no, that's truth. Um, I think that, um, you know, we're on this journey and we're all exploring and the, the key... The key thing I say to myself every day, <clears throat> well, I say lots of things to myself every day, but one of them is, um, one of them is stopping a dick good. And apart from that, I, I say, um, you know, I say, uh, you know, let's be humble in the face of wine. It's it's something we can't, you know, that we can't really understand completely. Yeah, um, that's cool. We just be humble in the face of it, explore it, and and discover, make some discoveries. And I think wine writing has suffered a bit from the desire for critics to try every wine. You know, they go to a region and they want to try all the wines, visit all the producers, or maybe even just taste all the wines in a big lineup blind. And <clears throat> that's not the way you understand wine. No. And I think we need to move away from that into to more writing where people start telling more stories and say, well, look, I found some really cool things. Um, you're not saying I know which are the best wines in the world. You're saying I just found some cool things. You might enjoy them as well. Sure. And here's, and why, here's why, but you might disagree with me, and that's okay too. Yeah, and it's your own personal brand as a writer. The sorts of things you like and you recommend and you encourage other people to try, that's your branding, really. Um, and that's the liberating thing as well. I know it's useful to have all these reviews, but it's gone a bit bonkers, especially in Australia with all those scores. They're just, they're, it's like you can make a, a mediocre table wine and score 93 points right now. You know, it's a, it's. If you make anything half decent, it's 95, 96, 97. So there's not many points left now. No. So those are initial uh, interactions with you had with wine that kind of um, got you a lot more interested in it. Um, you, when you were being introduced to these wines, what was the sort of the context? Was that kind of playing into why you particularly enjoyed um, you know, tasting and drinking wines and discussing wines, um, you know, in, a, I guess, a, a slightly more um, nerdy way? Yeah, I, know, I think um, <clears throat> the context was, was just, it was not like, this, you, need, you need to learn about wine. It was more like, this, this, you know, this is interesting. And I suddenly thought, yeah, it's a subject that's quite interesting. And the, the reason it was helpful to be introduced by somebody else is because, They'd made a selection of interesting wines. If you, and when I tried to do a bit of self-discovery, um, sort of my own journey in wine, I went to supermarkets and bought wines with similar names off the shelves as the things I'd enjoyed and suddenly found out they didn't taste the same, but they weren't as interesting um, because um, the wines I'd initially been exposed to came from an independent wine merchant. They were from good producers. And so I suddenly 
got this slightly disillusioning realization that just because a wine's got the name of a place on the front of it doesn't mean it's going to taste of that place. Sure. That um, most of the wines in the supermarkets really weren't weren't that interesting. They 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 kind of had the right names on the front, but they just didn't have the right flavors. So that was a a big moment. I think discovering that that um actually it's the producer that matters. And was it not necessarily a question of quality, but also that you kind of had an expectation to, uh, an expectation about a wine from a certain place or a wine um, made from a certain variety, you know, that it, it tasted different and that kind of um, confused you a little bit? Yeah, and I think it's the thing that, that with with wine, um, you, you get this, um, when you first start out in wine, you, you, you find things you'd like, you know, they really, really like, but you don't know why you, you really like them. And sure. trying to replicate that experience is really difficult. It's like you find, and I think one of the benefits of being a wine geek with, you know, a number of years of drinking under your belt is when you have a good experience with wine, you know how to replicate it. You know, ah, then, then if I like this particular producer, this variety from this Australian wine region, then I will probably like the same, you know, if I find other good producers in that region, and good producers being the key thing, then I'll probably be able to replicate that experience. But when you're um, just new to wine, it's really difficult. It's, it's because there's, there's so few, you know, really helpful buying cues out there. You know, and there's a lot of shelf space taken up by wines that they look the real thing, but they don't taste like the real thing. Sure. So, what shape did your kind of <clears throat> wine discovery start to to take? Did you um, were you kind of just uh, as an enthusiast uh, discovering wines, buying wines and tasting and sharing wines or did you kind of start to um, chronicle things? Like, at, what, at what point did you actually start kind of doing some um, blogging, that kind of thing? Yeah, so this is like um, we're in the mid-90s now and suddenly along comes the internet. I think probably 95, 96 we got internet at work um, and then suddenly you can connect with geeks so for me, the, the big turning point was discovering these online wine bulletin boards. And in the early days of the internet, they were they were kind of like commun- friendly communities. Now they're like, it's a bit of a car crash, some of these, these bulletin boards. They're just pe- people yeah, looking for a fight or, you know, showing off what they've got in their cellars. When I didn't those even days, know those like sort of um, chat boards still existed. I thought it was all just like commenting on YouTube videos or commenting on you know articles or that kind of thing. No, pretty much, yeah. Those, those, those they're, they're kind of they're they had their day. They certainly had their day. Social media now has pretty much replaced them. Yeah, and I I love social media, but um, in the early days of those, you know, the internet, you know, the late nineties. Um, I just learned so much just from hanging out on those bulletin boards. Of course, I thought I knew everything, you know. <laughs> but um, the truth is that that's when you learn interacting with other wine nuts. And we used to meet up for offline wine dinners. And it was a small enough community that you could realistically do that. And so when I traveled with work, often I'd meet up with, you know, these wine geeks who I'd been chatting about wine with on the Internet. And it was kind of an interesting time. And then I started a, my own website, um, First of all, in I think probably 96, 97, just a very amateurish attempt. And then in 99, late 99, I registered my domain name and put Wine and Rack online in its more or less its current form, but obviously a bit smaller. And then blogging came along in 2001, I think September 2001, I started blogging, which was a, a really cool thing. It was really interesting. Um, and that's when blogs were cool. You know, they were the latest thing. So. Mm. And, and, and what were you? What was your engagement with? I guess more traditional wine communication at that point. Were you um, were you seeking out books? Were you um, engaging with uh, with wine articles? That kind of thing. Yeah, just, I just for your re- own kind of um, education. Yeah, it really helped. Books really were, were really helpful. I remember the, one of the first wine books I got was a um, a guide to. Um, wine from Oz Clark and the Australian section was written by James Halliday and mm. as, a, as a someone new to wine I found um, both of them, they write both of them used to write in a beautifully accessible way they still do of course but at, but at the time it was a really um, that was really helpful you know and especially I think Australian wine was the way I got into wine because it was just so accessible you know um, at the time the, in the UK we were 
you know, we were really getting into Australian wine. We, we loved the flavors, even the commercial stuff. Most of it tended to be made from, you know, proper wine regions. Um, so um, the wines were really good. They were really accessible. They were affordable. And you could you could understand, you know, the concept, you know. And so for me, that was the, the, the entry point. And I, I found, um, so I've always, always had a keen interest in um, Australian wine. My first ever visit was to wine country was the Barossa Valley in March 2006. So that was my first experience of going to wine regions and um, visiting Salador. That, that's pretty uh, extraordinary considering your accessibility to you know, much more traditional uh, wine-producing yeah. countries in Europe. But you see, the thing is, to somebody new to wine, um, you, you know, most of the classic European regions are completely inaccessible. They're just starting now, even now. Um, you just rock up as a tourist in Burgundy. Well, where do you go? If you rock up as a tourist in um, Bordeaux, where do you go? And it's, it's changing a bit now. But um, in those days, it was pretty much impossible. I remember in 98, being in the south of France, and I was I was fascinated um, you know, I remember going to Northern Rhone. The only place you could go and taste wine was the Carve de Tain, which is a good place, you know. But it's that you think this is one of the world's great wine regions, and it's just totally inaccessible to tourists. And then going down to Chateauneuf de Pape and finding it absolutely impossible to have a cellar door experience. Um, so wine course, tours, if you, if, you, you, if you booked in advance and you wrote a letter in French and introduced yourself, you could make an appointment as an amateur. But um, but um, it really wasn't accessible at all. And you, and I, I suppose you at, the po- at that point didn't sort of have any ins with the uh, with the trade or with importers that kind of thing. No, I was just on holiday, you know, and I, I just wanted I was interested in wine, but I, I had no professional connections. Um, yeah. So so places like California, I'm going to California in ninety ninety eight as well, and that was so accessible. It was amazing, and I'm um, going to. Um, Going to you know Australia was was fabulous you know and even South Africa when we went there and with the kids and that was you know it's, you could just rock up and go and visit good producers and yeah. so that's that makes a big difference I think. So you're you're writing initially um, with one uh, anorak and and with the blog. Um, what sort of writing were you kind of going for? Were you looking to share tasting notes or were you? wanting to share just your personal experiences or were you hoping to introduce an audience uh, to to a story that they might be interested in? No, I wasn't as sophisticated as that. I was more, more or less sharing tasting notes and writing opinion pieces and just generally busking, you know. Um, I didn't know what I was doing at all, but um, um, I think that's that, – that nobody really did. And it was, like it was like a gold rush, you know, a land grab, you know. No rules. Like no, no rules. You go in there, and, and there's lots of you know. You make you you stake your claim and um, defend it. And mm. and the internet was just not taken seriously at all. It was just like a you, you were kind of a computer scientist geek if you if you had an internet site. So um so really fairly soon on, I realised that if I fancied myself as a wine writer, I'd have to start trying to get into print. Sure. So I got my first print commissions in 2002. I was just a, you know, I, I got a little, got, I wasn't well known, but I'd become known a little bit as the sort of wine internet guy in the UK. And um, there were a few of us, so just a handful of us doing it. And so I pr- approached editors and said, now can I write for you? And, um, and um, one or two of them said, oh yeah, go, give you a go. And that was really, that was really great, you know, and that, so I've always had this approach where I do this stuff on the internet, but I also I focus on print as well because even now print is taken much more seriously than anything that's on a website. Which, yeah, which is. I think I think the online communication is sort of ebbs and flows and stalls sometimes, and it sort of it shows promise and then suddenly it kind of bottoms out a little bit. Yeah, I think the challenge is for for many people is to make money out of them. Um, what they do on the internet. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And people are, you know, I might have always taken the long game approach, which is you give your stuff away on the internet, make some money from advertising. Yeah. But, um, but, uh, the main thing is that it, it's like your calling card, you build your reputation and you gain, you, you know, you, you get in touch with your tribe. Um, sure. People who think similar way to you, who like what you write. And once you've got that sort of basis, then other stuff comes on the back of that. So that's always been my approach. Do you find it um, 
sort of third party endorsement is is very helpful like if if another wine communicator or if, uh, if other people involved in in the wine business kind of are redirecting what audience they may have towards you do you think that is a huge uh, boost to your uh, you know growing your own audience and, and your own reputation yeah I think it can be really helpful yeah I think the main thing is to be part of a community and to be taking part of you know, you gain your authority not because you, you, you claim it. You gain your authority because other people confer that on you. Sure. Um, as you're part of a community and, and people, after a while, if you if you give a bit and share and you take part, then people, you know, recognize your voice and the sorts of things you're good at. And that, that sort of endorsement is really valuable. So had you done any sort of studies as far as writing or journalism at all? Oh, absolutely not, no. Um no, I'm just an amateur, really. I'm <laughs> just a guy who likes drinking wine and writing about it. So I in, was, a way, I was, in a way, you were using the, the, the blog um, as a way to develop your own writing skills as well. Absolutely, yeah. If you go back through history, you can see a development for sure. Um, I mean, I was lucky. I was working with words. You know, I was a science editor. Um, so my daily work was with words. And I think uh, also if you read a lot, then that kind of helps you to to kind of get your own writing voice yep. and in some some ways um, yeah learn I would have probably benefited a great deal from proper journalistic training or writing training and probably still would but um yeah I just did it the way I did it almost like I fell into it so I, I wasn't kind of I wasn't structured and I've never been terribly strategic either I, I just that's that's something that's just kind of happened <laughs> I hope you're enjoying this fascinating discussion about wine communication uh, because I wanted to share with you uh, another supporter of the podcast, which is Wine Companion. Wine Companion uh, is an amazing uh, resource to learn more about wines. Uh, Wine Companion uh, brings out a, a magazine quite regularly, which has fascinating articles uh, and tasting notes about wines. Uh, there's also a really amazing resource on the website, a back catalogue of tasting notes and scores, and also information, very important information about wineries around Australia, uh, which you may want because you may be visiting wineries uh, this summer. Uh, also, Wine Companion, of course, is the annual guide by James Halliday, uh, which does chronicle, I guess, or, or catalogues the wines of the year um, with tasting notes and ratings. And um, they have uh, awards and uh, and it's a fantastic way for you to stay in touch with um, with wines being made in Australia. But uh, as a special uh, um, treat for listeners of this podcast, if you go to winecompanion.com.au and you're uh, interested in any subscription package, if you put in the code INTREPID30 at purchase, then One Companion will give you a 30% discount. So it's a fantastic way for you to engage with uh, more wine communication like this podcast. And it's a great way for you to support the podcast as well by, uh, by putting that code in so thank you very much for uh, your support wine companion so um initially it sounds like the the writing was really just a way for you to share your own experiences as you learn yourself and i guess for for whoever was reading to kind of follow you on that journey and they could sort of discover and learn as well yeah that's a good way of putting it yeah that's more or less the way it's happened it's quite organic but it's uh it's really describing my progress on a journey, which is obviously still continuing. So um, it's something that that yeah, I think the thing with something like a blog, it's 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 an informal communication medium, and it can be quite a personal one. And I think if you have a personal voice and you share your own journey, the fewer the filters between you and the reader. I think the the more um, the, it's like it's like recording. If you go into a recording studio. Um, it's very easy to add extra tracks and to layer and to add effects and to bring in um, you know, sophisticated arrangements. Sometimes the most powerful form of um, musical communication is a raw one, you know, with, um, with less. And so I think that's the way it is with writing sometimes. You can layer it too much. You can finesse it too much. It's, it's a finessing a verb. I don't know. Um, you can really make too much of it when sometimes that direct rawness of, of feeling like you're sitting next to somebody and having a conversation, I think, it can be lost. And sometimes it's good to kind of keep that. That sounds very uh, eerily similar to wine as well. 
yeah, I think that's true. It's um, you can you can lose the connection with place quite easily. So at a certain point, I guess you kind of evolve into more of a, a kind of an authority, I guess, or like you you kind of people came to you because mm. uh, you were perceived to have you know a very good understanding about you know sense of place and 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 wines uh, that that sort of spoke with a little bit more authenticity authenticity. I guess um, where 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 did the sort of the the journey then take you? Yeah, I think I don't know. I'm, I'm still I'm just super curious about this concept of place and because it's such an interesting element of wine and it's not a straightforward one either. It's not a we we often use the terroir word too much. I think um, too carelessly because it's not a concept that we. I think anybody's really completely mastered yet. Yeah. Um, so this is still a, an area that, that um, fascinates me. And what does it mean in terms of flavor profile to have a sense of place in the wine? Um, how do you connect a, a, a liquid with a place? And um, that's something I think is that, that I'm still trying to grapple with. At, at a certain point, you kind of gravitated more towards i guess the, the less is more wines or the the lower intervention wines um did you start to get more of uh not really a reputation but people kind of started to think of you in that slightly different way less in that very classic very conventional kind of um wine uh, assessment and then wine communication yeah, I noticed that you skillfully avoided using the term natural there, which I think is kind of helpful um, because I think that, yeah, I kind of, I've kind of been associated with natural wine, but I've, I'm not like a signed up believer in the sense that I don't follow, you know, I've, I've, I do ask questions that, that sometimes are uncomfortable questions in that sort of community. I'm not, you know, unquestioning. Um, so I've, I'm fascinated by the lower intervention wines and there's a, mainly because it's just just through you know I, there's lots of wines that you'd call conventional that I love. But I've had some really cool flavor experiences with wines that are made by people who would would say they're more um, you know naturally inclined, and that's what's led me in that way because it's, it's all about the wine. It's all about the, the whether the wine is interesting. I guess it's the I'm less process focused and more results focused. So. I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I, it's not necessarily the first question I ask is, you know, what's your total sulfur dioxide level in this wine? Um, and how much sulfur dioxide did you add? That's, they're not my first question. My first question is, is this an interesting wine? Does it, does it say something interesting about where it's come from? Is it delicious? Is it complex? I think that's for me the, the crucial issue. Um, and so that's invariably led me to hang out with people who are working more naturally because they just seem to make very interesting wines. Yeah. I, th it, I do sometimes struggle myself with that kind of, in the same way that um, I guess in the scientific world, you know, there's the perception it's all sort of black and white and there is no kind of this area in between where we sort of just don't know that the wine too often is sort of, um, sub uh, I guess, uh, devalued in a way down to, mm the two extremes where a wine is either one thing or it is another, whereas in actual fact, there's this huge gray area in between what people consider to be conventional, what pe people consider to be natural, that, that, you know, it's very, very easy to sort of have a foot on both sides and, and, and they're kind of neither and, and both at the same time. And, um, I did, I, I, you know, I saw the piece that you put onto the, the, the site uh, recently uh, in, in sort of something you were thinking about uh, post-rootstock about, mm. about that. And I think that it's, it, 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 it's a hope, I guess, at a certain point that people possibly start to relax a little bit more. And I think that maybe it's a generational thing that there's that kind yeah. of conflict between generations and, and hopefully as the generation who are so stalwart in what wine is 
Um, and as the young generation who think of wine as one way mature and start to open my, their minds a little bit, hopefully that grey area gets to be appreciated a lot more. And, and at the end of the day, people are just enjoying more more wines that are authentic but are necessarily one thing or another. Yeah, I think that's a really good summary. I think uh, look at the Barossa, for instance. Um, remember when I first visited in '96? It was the, the old classic producers, and they were really good. There was nothing wrong with what's going on there. They were making some superb wines. And then you get to the the one I visited again around 2004. Um, there was this big. It was going through this crazy phase where uh, the big monster wines were getting massive points and selling out and you know, people were becoming rich and making just these caricatures of wines. And then there was a new wave that came, you know, the young winemakers, like the artisan crowd, and, you know, they came along. And now we've got a, another new wave of producers who are looking to work more naturally, making fresher wines, lower alcohol. There's always this continual evolution. And um, I think that the natural wine movement has been really important for waking up the whole world of wine. And it's it's... Um, impact has been far beyond just that small, um, interesting crowd um, who would say they're natural, natural winemakers. I think there's lots of winemakers working all over the place who are just considering what they're doing a little bit more carefully. And I think the big change has been this change to realizing that it's possible to pick a little bit earlier and still make very interesting, beautiful wines that have a little bit less alcohol. Um, you don't have to be 15.5% alcohol to make great wines. And also this interest that seems to be emerging in wines you know, that are maybe a little bit lighter in color as well. A deep color is not an indicator of quality. So we're seeing this evolution and maybe we're entering a post-natural wine era. Natural wines have this big impact. It will carry on as, a, as an alignment to producers. It's an unofficial sort of group and I think that's good. It's just people who like to hang out together and you know, go to wine shows and share their wines together. That's a really cool dynamic movement. But um, you know, the impact it's had has been really positive, I think, across a wider spectrum of producers. And, you know, we're moving beyond just natural or not, as our, as our discussion we're looking, is interesting or not, isn't it? is now the, the question that people are asking. And I think that's a really cool thing. Interesting and representative of where they're coming from, because I think what you were talking about before, as far as, um, you know, like a good example being the Barossa Valley uh, with, you know, Robert Parker, um, championing this certain style of Barossa wine and then everyone saying if we make the wine like that then we'll have success where rather than well let's just try and make the best wine we can on our spot of land yeah. uh, I yeah. think as far as your um, your um, your own communication particularly online I, I think you probably would agree that you know you have that audience who are with you on that journey, no problem. When you're kind of writing for for other publications or with as far as your your book, for example, uh, is that what you're sort of hoping to to do? As far as kind of pull people who are in those extremes sort of into that beautiful grey area? I think so. I think I just want to take people on. I don't. I, I don't like. This. I'd like kind of being the in, in between sort of dude who's saying to who's got a foot in both camps and trying to be friends with both camps. It's like being at school. It's like, you know, you're friends with the nerds and you're also friends with the cool guys, but you don't really fit into either camp completely. You know, you, you're, you're an in-betweener. And if you can help people kind of understand the other person's position better and think more critically and less dualistically, then that's a positive contribution, I think. Yeah. Um, at, at what point did you start to get invited to, to come and, um, for example, speak at, at, at wine events or come and visit uh, wine regions or wine-producing countries? Um, yeah, good question. Um, yeah, I think I, a lot of my early trips were sort of like I just happened to be working in a particular place, so I got support. I didn't, you know, I didn't ask for much. I just wanted a few um, appointments, you know, set up. I mean, for instance, with... Um, when I visited Australia the first few times, I was, you know, I was happened to get there because I was working in Singapore, just extended my ticket. Um, and, um, and that sort of, so it was, but I, I think the press trips really started coming in, in about 2005 when I got a newspaper column, then suddenly everyone gets very excited. If you get a national newspaper column, everyone suddenly invites you everywhere. So I think that was when I started um, taking press trips um, and getting invited out. And it kind of grew from there. Uh, yeah, so it's just it's a it's a slow thing, you know. I was for a long time I was 
uh, you know, I was, um, you know, working full time and doing wine and uh, around the edges, and that carried on until 2008. So it's only since 2008 that I've been um, fully freelance. And did you find um, really interesting kind of going from having your you know your own trip and and organizing your own itinerary and and sort of I guess you know not to sound too awful but like from being kind of no one to being someone and and being put onto the you know this itinerary and being shown to all these amazing places was it a bit of a shock? I think it still is a bit of a shock because I always find um, I'm just acutely conscious that that um. You know, people. Are, uh, it's an incredible, incredibly generous thing for people to to have you come visit and to open up bottles and to tell you their story. It's a real privilege, I think, as a as a journalist to be in that position where people are willing to share their work with you. And I think you have to to respect that a great deal. Um, so I still find it fascinating and a bit humbling um, um, that that I do get um, you know treated like somebody who's reasonably you know, worth having to visit. <laughs> it's kind of unusual. Something that um, has been a topic of discussion, certainly in Australia, uh, quite recently, as far as one communication is kind of that that uh, how to also um, be, uh, maintain your independence and I guess, um, you know, to put it uh, in, in uncertain terms, not to sort of be like a shill for for wine businesses or, or wine produce yeah. that kind of thing is is that um a constant kind of struggle for yourself yeah you've got to be absolutely honest and say what you think and the minute you start thinking about you know who who are you writing for if you start thinking you're writing for the producer or you're writing for the wine trade um um then you've lost it really um integrity is absolutely everything in writing about wine and i think there's you know, I'm very concerned about the growing number of, of wine, you know, wine people who are, who are, you know, they say they're journalists, but they're making money from the producers, you know, which is not the way it should be. Um, you know, they're, they're charging producers fees for either getting reviews or they're charging producers fees to access the information. So, the, you know, a journalist will go and visit a wine producer, taste their wines, and then the wine producer say, well, can I see the scores? And the, the, the Journalists will say, yeah, if you take out an institutional subscription for X hundred dollars, then you can see the scores. I think it's just it's wrong. I think that if you're a writer, you should be making money out of your audience. Um, you shouldn't be making money out of producers. That's parasitism. I think I think it's, wine writing is dangerously close to parasitism anyway. You know, um, we're getting stuff paid for all the time. We're getting flights paid for, hotels paid for. We're getting meals. Um, we shouldn't be going to producers and trying to sell them stuff. Even stickers, you know, we shouldn't be. We, we, that shouldn't be our business. We should make. We should make money out of um, the audience who reads our work. That's the only healthy and the only. Um, it's the only healthy way to do it. Otherwise, you're just creating too many conflicts of interest. And I think that that's something that, that people who are in the business of communicating about wine need to think about very carefully. I guess just to sort of play devil's advocate in a way, um, the, the challenge being that, unfortunately, I think a, a large part of the audience or the consumers uh, are, are so used to getting things for free now as far as being able to access information online is that they're not necessarily inclined to, to pay for, um, you know, really good wine communication and really good wine criticism. But, yeah, you could say that, but I think then the, the question is, yeah, you, you've got to think very carefully about how you do make that money um, um, and the sorts of choices that you make and also the disclosure of those choices. This sure. is stuff that has to be out in the open. Um, if you, you know, I take advertising on my website, that's fine, but I, I wouldn't be tapping producers up and saying, you know, guys, right, I'm, I'm coming to review your wines. And if you want a, you know, special, extra special article with more photographs and, you know, you know, lovely pictures of you and, you know, glowing reviews of your wines, then you can sub me a few hundred bucks. That, that, that's, that's when it gets completely murky. Um, and I think that any, there needs to be absolute disclosure. I mean, of course, we, we need to find creative ways of making a living. But um, there's, there's not a lot of honest disclosure going on about some of these practices. And I think that there should be. Um, ideally, you shouldn't do them at all. Um, but if you do, then you need to disclose it. And I guess there is a difference between collaboration and coercion. Yeah, and I think it's it's a, it's a you know 
it's very hard to say, well, this is the rule. This is how you should, what you should do and what you shouldn't do. It's almost the spirit of what you do. Is the spirit of what you do something that is truly collaborative or, or are you kind of pushing the producer to feel obliged? You know, and that, that's when it gets completely murky, you know? Absolutely. And you've, uh, you've no doubt had the opportunity to, uh, to visit uh, wine fairs, uh, you know, in many parts of the world. Um, do you find that they're a really uh, fantastic way that uh, the, 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 the consumer can actually engage with uh, the, the producers and with other kind of wine authorities in a really meaningful way and get a dialogue going? Yeah, I think this, they're brilliant. I just think they're so good. I wish there were... There were ways of doing it, though, other than just a producer standing behind a table with some bottles. You know, the table between the consumer and the producer, I think, is a sometimes a, a little barrier. And I think it's, you know, I, I would love to find more creative ways of getting that interaction going. You know, I, I don't know if there are, but I think wine fairs are superb. Yeah, I mean, I used to love going to them as a punter. I still love going to them. Um, my rootstock was fabulous. I enjoyed that a great deal. Yeah, I thought it was um, yeah, making them spacious and even if there's lots of people there, making them not feel crowded is good as well. Yeah. Well, it was, uh, I mean, of course it was uh, fantastic to have yourself, um, uh, you know, come and, and, and did you actually speak in, in, in any of the kind of uh, the round circle discussion kind of things? Yeah, I was involved in a couple of those. Yeah, it was, that, was, that, that was really good. That was a lovely idea, actually. I thought they were having their round circle was pretty cool. I think that sort of thing is really cool. Even just having fewer of those, you know, so more of those and maybe less informal, just sitting around with a producer sure. would be a thing to do. You know, maybe you could have five going along and say, this producer will be pouring their wines in that sort of, you know, maybe with 10 chairs in a circle. Then you come and, you know, this time you come and sit down and if you want to have a conversation together about the wine, that would be super cool, I think. Do you, do you think that it was still sort of an intimidating situation for certain people that they possibly wouldn't have wanted to necessarily share their opinion? Yeah, of course. It's not for everyone. I mean, some people would find that intimidating. Um, but I think there's a lot of people who just, even if they're just sitting involved in a conversation without saying anything, it's that sure. inclusion. Yep. And the idea of sitting in a circle, um, it's just such an inclusive thing. And I love that idea. And so it's a really creative idea. Well, that maybe that's uh, one one good idea that we can uh, introduce more of into uh, wine fairs to, uh, to you know rather than there being the barriers of the tables between the producer and consumer. Yeah, even just to have um, you know fifteen minute sessions, even if they're free, just fifteen minute sessions. You know, to say this producer's here at this time, this producer's here at this time, this producer's here at this time, and just I guess a lot, a lot of it's about having the space to do that. But if you can find the space, you know, even if it's just gathering a few chairs. In a you know in the food areas or something, and just getting people to come and sit down and um, you know even if even if people stand around as well, that's a nice cool idea I think as well. Mm. You know you, you could have winemakers walking around or wine sorry wine wine growers walking around, um, and the wine grower well she could be carrying a bottle of wine with her and a, there could be a sort of like a, a badge or something saying you know um, come and talk to me and taste the wines and you could get, maybe gather, gather small groups of 10 or 10 people or so, you know, around and just a digital conversation about maybe just one wine. Um, I think that sort of thing would be super cool, you know. More conversation starters, I think. Yeah. I think you need to have something to talk around, you know, what's the theme, you know, what's the, what's the idea? A conch. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. um, yeah, I, I'm just interested. Apart from the your own uh, writing and and you know as far as the social media and stuff like that, uh, people could follow you. But have you got anything else coming up that you'd like to share with uh, with the the Vincast listeners? Um, no, I've got a got a book I'm working on at the moment, which is be, it's, it's been one of the most interesting projects I've got involved with. It's, it's called I Taste Red. It's about the flavour of wine and it's looking at flavour more generally and the perception more generally, using wine as sort of lens to get in on that issue. And it's been a really interesting thinking about the way we perceive the world around us and the way we experience the world. So that's that's my current project, which is almost near completion, but it won't be out for a few months. But it's something that, that um, I'm, I'm really into at the moment. Wow, that sounds awesome. Well, thank you very much, Jamie. I really do appreciate you uh, don't, uh, giving me some of your time uh, and uh, for getting up early to, to, to be on the Vincast. 
Um, as far as people following you um, online, on social media, that kind of thing, uh, would you like to share your addresses uh, and, and social media accounts? Oh, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so so on Twitter, it's just Jamie Good, uh, J-A-M-I-E-G-O-O-D-E. Um, on um, Instagram, Jamie Good was taken, so it's Dr. Jamie Good, D-R-J-A-M-I-E-G-O-O-D-E. Um, so that's, that's the place to start, really. And I'd love to be friends on Facebook, but they have a limit of 5,000 friends. So I kind of like, um, occasionally I purge and make some new slots and, you know, but it, it's, it's a Facebook's a problematic one because having a page is ridiculous because you have to pay basically for people to see your posts and that's not my sort of thing. So, so that's my social media. Yeah. Well, there you go. And Wine Anorak is the, the website? Yeah. Website wineanorak.com. Fantastic. Well, uh, thank you again. Uh, looking forward to hopefully uh, somewhere in the world uh, bumping into you again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And obviously, it was great to, to have you in Australia recently. Yeah, no, back in July, actually. Oh, there you go. Yeah, Fantastic. So, okay. Well, thanks again, and uh, yeah, I'll speak to you soon. Great. Nice one. Thanks very much. And thank you guys for listening to the first episode of the Vincast for 2016. I have been James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And as always, you can follow myself on social media. On Twitter and Instagram, I am at Intrepid Wino. And the Vincast is at the Vincast on Twitter. If you go to facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino, you'll find my Facebook page, uh, which, which I'd appreciate you liking it. Uh, you can find links and uh, lots of photos that I've shared on there. Uh, if you go to the YouTube channel Intrepid Wino, one word, you'll find uh, some videos that I've posted. Mostly they are my Let's Taste videos where I just uh, open a bottle of wine and share my impressions of them. Uh, if you subscribe to the channel, that'd be fantastic. And please like some videos and leave some comments as well. Of course, as always, I would really appreciate you subscribing to the, the uh, Vincast. Uh, you can do that in a myriad of ways. Uh, iTunes, for example, or the podcasts app if you have an iPhone. Uh, and if you do subscribe, it means that you get the episode as soon as it becomes available. And if you could please um, spare a few minutes of your time just to leave me a rating and a review because it's a fantastic way to um, provide feedback, not just to myself, but also to potential listeners and also potential guests of the podcast so that they know that uh, I have a, an engaged audience. All that information, of course, is available at intrepidwino.com, my website, uh, every episode of the podcast, all of those videos, and lots and lots of different writings that I've done in the past. Uh, so please get in contact with me at thevincast at gmail.com if you would like to uh, just provide some feedback or uh, suggest some guests you'd like to have on the podcast uh, or if you'd just like to say hello. Uh, I look forward to um, sharing with you many, many more episodes of the Vincast for the new year. Uh, looking forward to having you back and um, yeah, I'll see you next time. Until then, bye.